Uh, Our gospel comes to us from the fourth chapter of John today. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask of me, a a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, would you have asked him, or you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water? The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then, the disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, What do you want or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I had ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the one of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four more months and then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans... 
from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. This is the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I invite you to pray with me for a moment. Holy God, you have a word for us today, a word of comfort and a word of challenge, a word of hope and a word of leadership for our lives. Make our hearts soft and plant this word in us that it may bear fruit through our lives. Amen. Well, friends, this gospel reading today uh, is from the regular lectionary cycle, yet it happens to fall on this Sunday. And no, I'm not talking about daylight savings time, but uh, this Sunday of the week of International Women's Day. You see, while we may not have uh, planned this alignment, apparently the Holy Spirit did have a plan. Because this woman of Samaria is one of the most important and significant women in the gospel story. In fact, I think that this might be the longest one-on-one conversation that Jesus has with anyone in the Gospels. But before we can truly appreciate how profound and important her role is, I think it's helpful to have a little bit more background about the Samaritans and the Jews and what's going on in this dynamic. What's the distinction here and where does that separation come from? So um, I'm putting a map on the screen. Don't worry, I'll zoom in in a minute. But the north of uh, Israel, Galilee, all the way down to Jerusalem in the south with Samaria in the middle. You see the hostility, it goes all the way back centuries into the Old Testament exile story. The Jews and Samaritans of Jesus' day were all descended of uh, ancient Israel from the 12 tribes. And if we zoom in a little bit, we can see uh, that Judea and Jerusalem are in the south, Samaria is just north of that there. And the reason this is important is because when the exile happened, when the Assyrians attacked in 721 BC, that's 700 years before this, they came from the north and they conquered the northern kingdom, which included what's now Samaria in Jesus' day. And they took those people off into exile, but the south, Judea, Jerusalem, that remained an independent southern kingdom and withstood that for over 150 years until Babylon then came later and conquered everything all the way down, destroying the temple. And so their exile experience was a bit different in the north and the south. And then when they came back, it was different as well. So when those folks came back to their homeland in the south, who hadn't been exiled as long, they wanted to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And they were so, uh, and they thought this was the only place to worship. And they wanted to do this because they wanted to be sure they weren't tempted by idolatry again. And so their uh, beliefs were so fierce about this that they even refused to marry anyone outside their Jewish community. But in the north, where Samaria is, When they came back, they had a little different perspective. They had a place, a shrine on a mountain in Samaria in their own area that they worshiped God at, and they thought that was acceptable to God, and they were more open to mixing and mingling and marrying with other cultures and and peoples around them. And and that kind of makes sense because in the north, they'd had an extra 150 years in their history of worshiping God in these other places when they were sent off in exile. But over the generations, these tensions and disagreements became so sharp that eventually the more Puritan Jews in the South 
decided that they should avoid these unfaithful Samaritans as much as possible. Even though both were descendants of the same people of Israel, both had the law of Moses, both worshiped God. And so you might notice that the woman in the story even explicitly refers to the well they're sitting at as being given to them by our father, Jacob. You see, she's very clear about who she is and who her ancestors are, where she comes from. And now if you look at the map here, you notice that if Jesus was traveling from Jerusalem back up to Galilee, the most direct route would have been through Samaria. Now, the northern part apparently is more Jewish. I don't know why. It probably has to do with when they resettled. But the most direct route would go straight through Samaria, but a lot of Jews actually would go around it along the river to avoid those people. And so this is why the woman in the story is utterly shocked when a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi, who should be the purity law police, starts talking with her and even asks to share water. Now, with all this kind of history and background in mind, I want to look at the story and notice some things together. First of all, did you catch uh, the woman's name or did you notice its absence? Multiple times, she's just referred to as the Samaritan woman, right? John gives us no name, which kind of should make us wonder why. Is it to signify that maybe she's so invisible in her own community that she doesn't even have a name worth sharing? Or is it that she has, does she really have an identity beyond her gender and her ethnicity? The only thing we know for sure is that John is almost certainly uh, keeping her name anonymous here because he has no problem naming the names of other women later in the gospel, so he's trying to point something out to us. Also, did you notice that she seems to be at the well alone apart from Jesus? And at noon, that's an interesting detail. I kind of wonder if it's, if it's lifted up this time because it's to contrast Nicodemus, the Pharisee from the chapter before, who would only come to Jesus under the cover of night in secret, but she's there during the day. Or maybe it's a sign that, you know, how most people would come to the well to carry water early in the morning or late in the evening to avoid the heat of day, but here she is alone at noon, which makes us wonder if maybe she's somehow almost an outcast in her own community. Now, if we move on a little bit uh, and look at Jesus' first words to her, Jesus says, give me a drink. Now, I was taken aback a little bit by this because I thought to myself, Jesus didn't use the magic word. <laughs> Did anybody else notice that? It, you kind of wonder, is it a demand or is it a question? We don't really know. I was really curious. I tried to dig in and there's really no indication in the Greek that this is rude. It's just kind of how the phrase came out. But as they strike up a conversation, they go back and forth a bit, and Jesus eventually says that he would have given you living water. I love her response in verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. I really want to know what her tone was like there. Was she being sassy with Jesus? Was this sarcastic? Or was she serious? We really don't know. But these next few verses are critical. 16 and following, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. And the woman said, I have no husband. And so Jesus said, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. Friends, when you hear this exchange about her marital status, what do you think of her? Do you think immoral or promiscuous? I've heard so many interpretations that center on this woman being a woman of ill repute. 
But look closer at the text with me. Does, does it say anything about her morality? Does Jesus say anything about her behavior or her morals? Friends, I confess that for years, I've read my own assumptions into this story and probably wrongly placed judgment on this woman. Because what if, what if she had five husbands and now this new person in her life, not because she's somehow immoral, but because she was at the mercy of a society where women had no rights and were seen more like property than people? What if her relationship history has nothing to do with promiscuity, but rather it's necessity in a culture where women were forced to live in dependency of men who alone could earn income, own property, or have a legal status? And how might we hear her story differently if we realize that in Jesus' time, men usually married women who were much, much younger than them, like at least a decade or more. So it was really common for most women to become widows and remarry and maybe become widows again. So it makes me wonder when Jesus says, and the one you have now is not your husband, is he saying to her, you're living with a man outside of wedlock and that's sin, or... Or is Jesus saying, my beloved child, I see you, and I'm so sorry for your situation, but know that I see your value, your worth, and the wondrous potential God has for you. Friends, if you feel unseen, unworthy, unloved, Jesus sees you, all of you, and doesn't look on us with, with pity, but with potential. And I have to think maybe this is how she heard it, because what happens next she lights up. She amazes us. She recognizes that something remarkable is here in Jesus, and she pours out this spiritual depth and knowledge and curiosity that far exceeds the scribes, the Pharisees, or the other religious big deals of her day. She asks questions. She listens. She learns. And through this conversation, we now, for the first time, get to hear Jesus reveal his truest identity where he says, I am sharing his divinity with us. And it's just then at the pinnacle of this spiritual revelation that the disciples show up. Running their mouths, they return and ruin the moment. What's he doing talking to her? And so she runs off and then the disciples keep going, it's time for lunch, Jesus, you got to eat something. They are totally oblivious to this amazing experience that Jesus just had. Have you ever had one of those times in your life where you've had this deep, emotional, spiritual, holy thing happen and then other people around you just are completely unaware? I think that's what Jesus is doing here. It's like he's saying, guys, guys, stop it, stop. I I'm not interested in lunch right now. You have no idea what just happened. This is it. This, we have to stay here. And in the story, this nameless, anonymous, maybe ostracized woman becomes the very first evangelist. She runs to town to tell anyone who will listen, and, and Jesus gets his disciples to stop talking and worrying about lunch for long enough to listen, and then they end up staying for two days in Sychar of Samaria with those people, those people who receive the gospel with joy. 
And this is so significant because this is early in John's gospel. It's only chapter 4. And right before this, chapter 2, Jesus goes to the temple, to the priests that should know what's going on, and they don't receive him. They reject his message in the gospel. And then chapter 3 is Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who at least comes to Jesus curious but still rejects and doesn't believe. But then here in Samaria, of all places, they listen and welcome him with open arms. Is it any wonder in verse 35 that Jesus says, But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. Yeah, guys, maybe we thought we were just passing through on our way back to Galilee, but these people, they are ready. They are hungry for God. They are ready for the gospel. And it's fascinating because other times in the gospel, Jesus is quick to move on. He doesn't stay in one place for long, but not here in Samaria because of this woman's witness, because of her excitement and her boldness. The doors are flung wide open for ministry and they stay for two whole days, which all goes to show us that sometimes God surprises us. Sometimes we find opportunities for ministry where we least expect it. When we follow Jesus, sometimes we find that we bear the most fruit in the most unexpected of places. And so as we Go out into the world this week. I want to send you with a couple questions to ponder. First, look around and wonder, where is there a plentiful harvest around me? And what relationships, is it school or work or my neighborhood or places just out in the community where people might be ready to hear a good word, a chance to share the gospel or share God's love with someone? And the second question is this, are you leaving space in your life for miraculous moments, for holy moments? We get so busy, sometimes we miss it. But when we make space and when these moments come, when the Spirit moves, sometimes sometimes we might be the downtrodden woman at the well and we just need to make space to hear what God is trying to say to us through someone else. Or maybe sometimes we sit down beside the downtrodden ones and we listen when God nudges our heart to to speak a word of hope or kindness. And sometimes all it takes to open the floodgates is a simple conversation starting word. May I have a drink? Friends, may God surprise you this week. May God show up in your life in unexpected ways. Let us pray. God of the unexpected. Sometimes we get so busy or so distracted that we miss your movement in our lives, yet your word tells us that you are surrounding us each moment of each day. God, help us to slow down and notice what you're doing in the world around us. Help us to see and seize opportunities to share your love or a word of hope with those around us. Open our hearts and our our eyes to see and hear when you speak a word of hope to us. Lord, may we be bold and not afraid to speak, to listen, and to move when you call. In Jesus' name, we give thanks and pray. Amen.